Welcome to Unveiled Faces, a Redeemer Presbyterian Church podcast. Please enjoy our future presentation. So we're beginning a new sermon series. There's only three chapters in the book of Habakkuk, and so this will not be a long series. Um, But in order to establish the social and political context for the whole book of Habakkuk, and not to mention our sermon text, let me begin with a brief overview of about 500 years of Israelite history. After the period of the Judges, Uh, Saul was established as the first king of Israel in 1050 BC. And Saul reigned for 40 years and was succeeded by David, um, who also reigned for 40 years. And then in 970 BC, Solomon became the king of Israel and he reigned for 40 years. And so this uh, 120 year period is known as the United Kingdom. It's called the United Kingdom because that's when there was one king ruling over all 12 tribes of Israel. They were united under one king. But that changed in 930 BC when Solomon's son Rehoboam ascended to the throne. There was strife and tension within the United Kingdom and Rehoboam didn't handle those challenges very well. So the the kingdom was split into two. The tribes of uh, Judah and Benjamin remained under the rule of Rehoboam when they made, and they made up the southern kingdom of Judah. And the remaining 10 tribes opted to have a man named Jeroboam be their king. And they made up the northern kingdom of Israel. Now the northern kingdom of Israel had 20 kings which ruled during the time of the divided kingdom. And what's notable about all 20 of these kings is that they were bad kings, which is to say not a single one of them honored God and ruled his people according to his law. And here we learn something that has application even to the way we judge our own civil rulers. So often we look at the, uh, a civil ruler, whether that be a president or a governor or some other political office, and we look at what that person has accomplished We look at that person's economic policies, their political policies, their foreign uh, foreign aid policies, and we judge the person based upon whether they're a good or bad ruler based upon what they've accomplished. And yet what God's word is teaching us here and consistently throughout is that a, a, a king or a president or governor or other political ruler is good or bad, not based on his ability to control the economy, but whether he submits himself to God or not. The good kings are the ones that submitted themselves to God. The bad kings were the ones that did not. Even though those bad kings accomplished terrific things in their time, building structures and and creating economies that flourished and people made money and people enjoyed prosperity, they were bad kings because they failed to submit themselves to God. And so here in the northern kingdom of Israel, um, prosperity was, was flourishing. The, the people were, were wealthy and there was all kinds of commerce being conducted. And yet we learn from God's word that all 20 of these kings were bad kings because not a single one of them honored God or ruled his people according to the law of God. So after 208 years of sending prophets to the northern kingdom, 
telling them, that they're, telling them about their sins, telling them that they need to confess and repent of their sins, warning them about the judgment that God will bring upon them if they refuse to repent. After 200 years of sinning prophets, the Lord made good on his threat. In 722 BC, he brought judgment on the northern kingdom of Israel. He used the Assyrian army to invade and conquer the northern kingdom of Israel. The Assyrians displaced the Israelites from their homes and they dispersed them all throughout the Assyrian empire. Those 10 tribes of Israel were assimilated into the Assyrian culture. They married foreigners and they ceased to maintain their identity as the people God had separated from the world, the covenant people that God had separated from the world. In the New Testament, we're introduced to a group of people called the Samaritans. And you've probably been taught that the Samaritans were half Jews. Well, the best biblical scholarship tells us that uh, the Samaritans came from the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh, who were taken into Assyrian captivity in 722 BC. They were part of the northern kingdom of Israel, those two tribes. And I don't know if we can really say that the Samaritans were half Jews, meaning they were 50% Jewish and 50% Assyrian. After 700 years of intermarriage, they may have been a lot more Assyrian than they were Jewish. But nevertheless, the Samaritans had a Jewish heritage dating all the way back to the northern kingdom. And we learn from Jesus' conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well that they still possessed a knowledge of Jehovah and worshipped him in a temple that they built on Mount Gerizim. The southern kingdom of Judah also had 20 kings, but not all of them were bad. There were a few good ones who honored God and ruled according to his law, but the majority of the kings, even in the southern kingdom, were bad. So after 344 years of sending prophets to the southern kingdom, telling them of their sin, warning them about the judgment that God will bring upon them if they refuse to repent of their sins, the Lord made good on his threat. He brought judgment upon the southern kingdom like he did the northern kingdom. In 605 BC, God used the Babylonian army to begin invading and conquering the southern kingdom of Judah. And over the course of the next 70 years, the Jews from the southern kingdom were displaced from their land and exiled to Babylon. But unlike the northern kingdom, God preserved a remnant from the southern kingdom who left Babylon to return to Jerusalem and began rebuilding the city, rebuilding the temple, and reestablishing a life of worship and service to God as a covenant people that he has separated from the world. The book of Habakkuk was written right around 605 BC, just before the Babylonian army began to take the southern kingdom captive. And this timing is important for us to know because the book of Habakkuk begins with the prophet asking God how long he's going to allow wickedness and violence to continue without a divine response. In his question to God, Habakkuk doesn't identify who is performing this wickedness. Habakkuk knows uh, who's performing this wickedness. 
and he knows that God knows who's performing this wickedness. And so he simply cries out to God in verse two, O Lord, how long shall I cry? And you will not hear. Even cry out to you violence, and you will not save. Notice two expectations that Habakkuk has of God. First, he expects that when he prays to God, that God will hear his prayer and respond in a timely manner. And second, Habakkuk expects that when God does respond, the response will bring salvation. In other words, the response will bring relief from the wicked. Look again at verse two and notice how both of these expectations are present. O Lord, how long shall I cry and you will not hear? Right, there's the expectation of a response. Even cry out to you violence and you will not save. There's the expectation of salvation, deliverance from, from wickedness. So who are these wicked people that Habakkuk is crying out to God about? It's the Jews. It's the Jewish leaders and aristocracy of the southern kingdom of Judah. Now, let me show you more of the social and political context of this book of Habakkuk um, so you can more clearly understand exactly what Habakkuk is crying out about. Let's zoom in on on this, this portion right here of our, of our uh, timeline. Josiah was the last good king of, Israel, uh, of the southern kingdom of, of Judah. Uh, during his 31 year reign, a great reform happened in the southern kingdom. While the temple was being repaired, uh, Hilkiah the high priest found uh, the book of the law and, and had it read to Josiah the king. And Josiah was so moved by God's declarations of judgment upon sin that he ordered that the book of the law be read publicly to others as well. And then he, Josiah, began to destroy the vessels uh, that had been used for Baal worship and other forms of idolatry. He tore down the pagan shrines in the high places in all the towns of Judah, which included the shrines that Solomon had built way back in the day. Those shrines were still in use even in Josiah's day, and he tore those down as well. He put an end to the homosexual prostitution that was being practiced in the temple of God. He made it so nobody could make their sons or daughters pass through the fire to Molech. And Josiah accomplished other notable reforms, all of them righteous, all with the goal of ruling the southern kingdom of God according to God's law. When Josiah died in 609 BC, his son Jehoahaz took the throne. And Jehoahaz was a bad king. He was not committed to the reforms that his father had made. And however, he only reigned for three months before he was imprisoned and deported by the Egyptian pharaoh Necho. The throne then passed to another one of Josiah's sons, Jehoiakim. And 2 Chronicles 36 verse five summarizes Jehoiakim's reign in two sentences. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he became king and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem and he did evil in the sight of the Lord his God. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord his God. 
Now, it was under Jehoiakim that Habakkuk was crying out to the Lord. This is because Jehoiakim did not maintain the reforms that his father had put in place. Sin and idolatry were so deeply entrenched in Jehoiakim's heart, as well as the hearts of the other leaders and prominent people in Judah, that Josiah's reforms did not survive. Once Josiah was no longer there to enforce and uphold these reforms, Judah quickly reverted back to all the evil practices that had preceded the reforms. And Habakkuk was watching all of this happen. He saw the idolatry returning. He saw the shrines and high places being rebuilt. He saw homosexual prostitution being practiced again in the temple. He saw people sacrificing their children to Molech. He saw the rampant return of all forms of immorality and decadence. And when you read the uh, the grievance that Habakkuk brings to God in verses 2 and 3, you'll notice, you'll see that he uses six different nouns to describe what he was witnessing. Violence, iniquity, trouble, plundering, strife, and contention. Violence, iniquity, trouble, plundering, strife, and contention. Then in verse 4, Habakkuk laments how the law of God has become ineffective in society. It's ineffective because the leaders of Judah won't enforce it. Nobody wants to govern according to God's statutes. Nobody wants to submit themselves to God's standard of justice and righteousness. They only want to do what's right in their own eyes. So Habakkuk prays to the Lord, the law is powerless and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, therefore perverse judgment proceeds. Perverse judgment proceeds. Brothers and sisters, can you relate to what Habakkuk was experiencing? Only four years earlier, Josiah was on the throne and he was ruling righteously. Under Josiah, Habakkuk was experiencing the joys and blessings described in Proverbs 29, verse 2a. When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. Then four years later, under the reign of Jehoiakim, Habakkuk was experiencing the turmoil and sorrow described in Proverbs 29, 2b. But when a wicked man rules, the people groan. Do you know this form of groaning? Have you ever said to yourself, wow, what a difference four years can make? What a difference a change in the administration can make? When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. When a wicked man rules, the people groan. Habakkuk, was groaning. Understand that there is a difference between groaning and grumbling. Grumbling is complaining. Grumbling is venting one's frustrations about something that's disagreeable. It typically takes the form of frustration, annoyance, resentment, and unrighteous anger. It's a way of expressing negative feelings without directly confronting the situation or pursuing a solution. Grumbling is always sinful, Grumbling is always unproductive. Habakkuk was not grumbling. He was groaning. 
Groaning is the expression of sadness, grief, frustration, and righteous indignation. It flows out of an emotional weariness because of the persistent exposure to some form of oppression or unrighteousness. 2 Peter 2.7 says that when Lot, righteous Lot, it says, he's a righteous man, when Lot was living amongst the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, he was, quote unquote, oppressed, New King, New King James Version. He was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. A more literal translation of 2 Peter 2.7 says that Lot was worn down by the conduct of the impious. He was worn down by the conduct of the impious. And that's a, a wonderful description of what groaning is. It's being worn down emotionally, physically, even spiritually worn down by persistent exposure to the sins of the impious. We live in a world today where there's a lot of persistent exposure to the sins of impious people. If you consider the six nouns Habakkuk uses in verses two and three of our sermon text, as he describes the wickedness of his day, I think you'll see that uh, the reasons he was groaning are not all that different than the reasons we groan today. The first noun he uses is, is violence. Sinful societies are often characterized by violence. This is because sinful societies have the attitude that might makes right. Wicked people feel justified in using power and force to impose their will upon others. Coercion is seen as a legitimate means to achieving one's goals and ambitions. And different forms of violence are imposed on anybody who resists or threatens those goals and ambitions. Violence, therefore, is considered a legitimate means to an end. If a court of law rules in opposition to a special interest group, there's rioting in the streets. If a police officer is thought to abuse his authority, there's rioting in the streets. If a particular sports team either wins or does not win an important game. There's rioting in the streets. There's rioting in the stands. There's rioting on the field. If you don't agree with a person's identity politics, then they'll shout you down. You're maligned. You're canceled. You're accosted. Uh, there's no shortage of people who are willing to carry out acts of violence against you, either on, on your person or on your family, or on your car, or on your house, or on your livelihood, upon your reputation, or in a myriad of, myriad of other ways. If an unplanned pregnancy gets in the way of a person's goals and ambitions, the solution our society offers is violence against the unborn. Kill, crush, dismember, dispose of the person who stands in the way of your goals and ambitions. The second noun is iniquity. And this noun literally means misfortune. It occurs about 80 times in the Old Testament and almost exclusively in prophetic language. The misfortune is that which is experienced in the devices of the wicked against the righteous. 
It's the misfortune that is experienced in the devices of the wicked against the righteous. In other words, it's what the righteous person experiences when the wicked plot against God or when the wicked plot against the people of God. So in Psalm 41, verse 6, the psalmist describes how he expected misfortune to come upon him because his enemies were speaking lies about him. And in Isaiah 32, verse 6, the word is used to describe how those who act against God end up inflicting misfortune upon people in need. For the foolish person will speak foolishness and his heart will work iniquity. That's the word right there. To practice ungodliness, to utter error against the Lord, to keep the hungry unsatisfied, and he will cause the drink of the thirsty to fail. The point here is that the type of iniquity Habakkuk is groaning about is the misfortune believers experience because of the foolish and wicked decisions God-haters make. Because of the wicked and foolish decisions God-haters make. It might be that the God-haters are intentionally bringing misfortune upon God's people, or it might be that the misfortune we suffer is an unintended consequence of the God-haters' foolish decisions. Either way, the iniquity that Habakkuk is groaning about in verse 3 of our sermon text is, is the misfortune that God's people experience when God-haters make foolish and wicked plans. So when they tell you that they're following the science, that brings iniquity upon God's people. This brings forth misfortune upon God's people. And when God-haters create oppressive legislation in the name of climate change, this brings forth iniquity. This brings forth misfortune for God's people. And when God-haters plot to disarm citizens and make us defenseless against tyranny and oppressive forces, this brings forth iniquity. This brings forth misfortune for God's people. Are you, brothers and sisters, are you groaning because of iniquity in our society? Are you growing weary of suffering under the foolish plans and wicked decisions of godless people? The third noun Habakkuk uses in his groaning to God is trouble. This word means to get tired from hard work, to get tired from hard work. Habakkuk is saying that it's hard work to resist the wicked while promoting righteousness. And he's growing tired of that work. Hence Habakkuk's question, how long, O Lord? How much longer do I need to toil in this seemingly endless labor? I work hard, yet it doesn't seem like I'm making any progress. Have you ever questioned whether all your efforts for the kingdom of Christ are worth the toil that it takes on you or the toll that it takes on you? Have you ever labored in prayer over a particular situation only to wonder whether the hours you spent on your knees were wasted time? Are you laboring to train up your children in the way they should go? And you're seriously questioning whether you have the strength to continue that work until the day they spread their wings and fly the nest. Do you, does punching a time clock to bring home the bacon for the next 40 years seem like an unbearable burden to you? Do you have a challenging person in your life 
no matter how hard you try, no matter how many times you talk about it, no matter how many apologies are made, it just seems to never make any progress. It's not going anywhere. Are you experiencing chronic health issues? Are you tired of going to doctors? Are you tired of treatment plans? Are you tired of taking medications? Are you questioning whether you have the strength to stay the course? There's a lot of trouble in life, brothers and sisters. I think many of us have experienced the type of trouble that Habakkuk is groaning about. And I think many of us are quick to join our voices with Habakkuk when he cries out, oh Lord, how long? How much longer? The fourth noun is plundering. This refers to goods and property that are taken by force. Habakkuk saw people's wealth and productivity being taken from them by force. And I don't think it's difficult for us to comprehend this word. Uh, We live in California, after all. Uh, When you consider the overall tax burden, I think the only other US US state that has a a comparable or higher taxation than California is New York. Most of us know what it means to have our wealth and productivity taken by force. We're forced to pay for public assistance programs that are unbiblical. We're forced to pay for an education system that's unbiblical. We're forced to pay for so-called health services that are unbiblical. We're forced to pay for foreign aid programs that are unbiblical. We're forced to pay for interest on government debt that's unbiblical. And our wealth is being plundered as the Federal Reserve continues to devalue our currency by inflating the money supply. How long, O Lord? How long must this plundering go on? How long will my wealth be taken from me? How long will the fruit of my labor be taken by force? The fifth and sixth nouns are strife and contention. And strife refers to physical combat, whereas contention refers to quarrels, arguments, and other non-physical forms of dissension. Habakkuk mentions strife and contention together because um, where one is found, the other is usually not far behind. In a society of sinners who have no regard for the moral law of God, it's not uncommon for a verbal altercation to develop into a physical altercation. Uh, What started off as a quarrel might end up as a fist fight, or even worse, a gunfight. Habakkuk is, is groaning to God that strife and contention were prevalent in Judah, and it's that way in the United States as well. Turn on the evening news and you'll be bombarded with strife and contention. There are contentions over immigration, contentions over race, contentions over marriage and gender, economics, gun control, vaccines, social justice, environmental policy, free speech and censorship, wealth distribution, and so on and so on. We live in such a contentious society that you can get into serious trouble simply by sharing an opinion that offends somebody. The unpardonable sin in our day is to offend a person. The I'm offended rhetoric has great power in our society. 
Notice, for example, how some of the guest speakers are treated at university campuses. About two weeks ago, a female swimmer named Riley Gaines spoke at the campus of San Francisco, San Francisco State University. She said that it is not fair that female swimmers have to compete against male swimmers. This opinion that she offered offended the audience to the degree that a crowd of protesters rose up against her. A man wearing a dress struck her twice, hitting her once in the shoulder and once in the face. And the rest of the mob was pushing her into a corner when the campus police were able to escort her to an empty room where she had to barricade herself in that room for three hours because of the angry mob who wanted to harm her. It took that long for the violent mob of protesters to be dispersed. That, brothers and sisters, is the type of thing that we should be groaning over. That's the violence, iniquity, trouble, plundering, strife, and contention that we should be crying out to God asking, how long, O Lord? And understand, it is not a sin to ask God this type of question. A quick survey of the Psalms show that this is a question the psalmists frequently asked of God. Psalm 13, verses one through two. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long will my enemies be exalted over me? Psalm 35, 17. How, Lord, how long will you look on? Rescue me from their destructions, my precious life from the lions. Psalm 74, verses 10 and 11. Oh God, how long will the adversary reproach? Will the enemy blaspheme your name forever? Why do you withdraw your hand, even your right hand? Take it out of your bosom and destroy them. Psalm 89, verse 46. How long, Lord, will you hide yourself forever? Psalm 94, verse three, Lord, how long will the wicked, how long will the wicked triumph? Even the book of Revelation, as the fifth seal is being opened, verse 10 of chapter six explains how the martyrs under the altar are asking, how long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? How long? Asking how long is not a sin. It's actually an act of faith. I say it's an act of faith because asking the question reveals that we believe at least four things about God that can only be accepted by faith. Four things that can only be accepted by faith. First, it reveals our belief that God sees the wickedness of the wicked even more clearly than we see the wickedness of the wicked. Second, it reveals our belief that God has a power and authority to subdue the wicked. Third, the how long question reveals our belief that God has a plan, that is a schedule, a timetable, by which he will subdue the wicked. And fourth, it reveals our belief that when God does subdue the wicked, He'll do it effectively and judiciously so as to avenge all the wrongs that the wicked have committed against the Lord and his people. 
So it's not a sin to groan as Habakkuk is groaning. And it's not a sin to ask how long as Habakkuk is asking. But it is a sin to grumble. And it is a sin to accuse God of wrongdoing. We should understand that when we get to the point where our soul is so burdened that we're crying out to God, asking him how long, we need to tread cautiously because we can very easily step over the line into sinful forms of grumbling and complaining against God. I see a parallel here with what the Lord says about anger. Psalm, in Psalm 4, verse 4, God says, Be angry and do not sin. This is also repeated in Ephesians. Be angry and do not sin. And we understand this to be telling us that there's a righteous form of anger that God says we need to possess. For example, we should be righteously angry when we see people being treated with injustice. We should be righteously angry when we see a man push an elderly woman to the ground so that he can grab her purse and run off with it. We should be righteously angry when we discover a young child is being abused by an adult family member. But we need to tread very cautiously in our righteous anger because it evokes powerful emotions that can easily morph into sinful forms of anger. So we need to be on our guard in our anger. We need to be angry, but we must not sin in our anger. And so it is with groaning to God. Groaning is done within the context of powerful emotions. Righteous groaning happens when our heart, soul, and body are worn down by the persistent sin and oppression of the wicked and and impious people. So we cry out to God for his deliverance. We cry out to God for his salvation. And it's not wrong, as we've seen in the scriptures, to ask God how long before he subdues the wicked. But we need to be careful not to go from groaning to grumbling or from an expression of faith in God to an expression of criticism of God. We need to exercise the same cautions in righteous groaning that we do with righteous anger because both of them are charged with powerful emotions and if we let those emotions control us, we can very easily step over the line into sin. Habakkuk is righteously groaning and the questions he's asking are an expression of his faith. The fact that he's coming to God with his questions demonstrates that he knows God sees the wickedness. He knows God has a power and authority to subdue the wicked. He knows God has a schedule for subduing the wicked. And he knows that God, when God does subdue the wicked, it will be effective and judicious. Habakkuk, therefore, has given us a model for groaning. He has shown us how faith turns us to the Lord for answers when our hearts and souls and bodies are worn down by the persistent sin and oppression of the wicked and impious. If Habakkuk did not have faith in God, he would have turned somewhere else for answers. He would have turned to the strength of man rather than the strength of God. Or he would have turned to the wisdom of man rather than the wisdom of God. Or he would have turned to the devices of man rather than the devices of God. Or even worse, Habakkuk would have grumbled against God and accused him of wrongdoing, like Job's wife did. Uh, Habakkuk could have cursed God and given up on living in this world. But Habakkuk did none of those wicked things. 
Rather, his faith drove him to God for answers. Habakkuk, therefore, serves as a model for us to emulate in our own groaning. I noted earlier in the sermon that Habakkuk uh, had two expectations of God. First, he expected that when he prayed to God, that God would hear his prayers and respond in a timely manner. And second, Habakkuk expected that when God does respond, the response will bring salvation. That is, it will bring relief from the wicked. As far as the first expectation goes, uh, God did hear and respond to Habakkuk's prayer in a timely manner. In verse 5, God tells Habakkuk to look among the nations and watch, for God is going to do something utterly astounding. God goes on to say that he is going to work a work which Habakkuk would not believe, even if somebody had, would have explained it to him before it happened. And what is this astounding work the Lord is about to do? Verse 6. For indeed, I am raising up the Chaldeans, a bitter and hasty nation which marches through the breadth of the earth to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. The Chaldeans are the Babylonians, same, same group of people, different names. And from verse 6 to verse 11, God is describing how, uh, to Habakkuk how cruel and wicked the Babylonians are. These are not nice people. They're terrible and dreadful, God says. They're more fierce than evening wolves. They all come for violence. They gather captives like the sand. They defeat every stronghold. They transgress. They commit offense. And then God concludes by telling Habakkuk that after the Babylonians have successfully overpowered their enemies, they give credit for their success to the power of their false god. So as it pertains to Habakkuk's first expectation, yeah, God answered. As it pertains to Habakkuk's second expectation, that he would uh, uh, respond by bringing salvation from wickedness, Habakkuk was truly astounded, as God said he would be, truly astounded to hear that God is about to send the Babylonians to conquer the southern kingdom of Judah. It must, have been, it must have seemed to Habakkuk that the cure was worse than the disease. He came to God with the concern that the people of Judah had become wicked, and God essentially said, yeah, I know. That's why I'm sending the wicked Babylonians who are even more wicked than the people of Judah. Has the Lord ever responded to your groanings in ways that astound you? Does his response to your prayers ever challenge your expectations of God? Habakkuk has not finished asking God questions. Uh, beginning in verse 12, he asks the Lord how he can use evil to suppress evil. That's a valid question. And God has a valid answer to that question. And we'll be looking at that question and answer next week, Lord willing. But let it be understood right now that when Habakkuk prayed for the Lord to save his people from, from wickedness, he did not expect that God would send a wicked superpower to capture the people of Judah and deport them into exile. But that's exactly what God did in 605 BC. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim's reign, the Babylonian 
king, Nebuchadnezzar, took control of Judah, and he immediately began to deport Jews to Babylon. The first deportation was in 605 BC. This is when Daniel, along with his three friends and thousands of other Jews, were deported to Babylon. Now, Jehoiakim died in 598 BC, and he was succeeded by his son Jehoiakim, who was taken captive by the Babylonians exactly three months and 10 days after he ascended to the throne. And Jehoiakim, therefore, was replaced with Zedekiah, who was the final king of Judah. Now, all these after Josiah are bad kings. And in 587 BC, near the end of Zedekiah's reign, the second deportation of Jews were taken to Babylon. Uh, This is also when the city of Jerusalem was destroyed, along with the temple that Solomon had built. Zedekiah was taken into exile the following year, and the remaining Jews in Judah were without a king. There were still some Jews living in Judah, but they had no king. The third and final deportation of the Jews happened in 582 BC. At this point, God had effectively removed all the people of Judah from their land. God did not, however, fail to save his people from the wickedness. When Habakkuk prayed for salvation from the, from the wicked, he wasn't expecting the answer to include 70 years of Babylonian captivity. But let us acknowledge that God did answer Habakkuk's prayer. God did bring a faithful remnant of his people back to Judah. That remnant rebuilt Jerusalem, rebuilt the temple, and they committed themselves to living as a covenant people of God separated from the world. Notice the wisdom of God in this matter. Wickedness was prevalent in Judah at the time of Habakkuk's writing. Wickedness was prevalent. The leaders were in rebellion to God. The majority of the people were in rebellion to God. So how did God cleanse the land of this wickedness? How did he remove the wicked while preserving the righteous? He took everybody out. He took everybody out of the land of Judah. He brought everyone to Babylon. And then he sent a remnant of faithful, righteous people back to Judah, a remnant who was committed to serving him and doing his will. Nobody expected that. Habakkuk didn't expect that. Nobody saw this coming. And up until 535 BC, it appeared as though the situation was a tragedy. It appeared as though the southern kingdom would go the way of the northern kingdom, that they'd be assimilated into the the culture of their captives and lose their Jewish identity. But when God eventually revealed the grandeur of his plan by sending a remnant of faithful Jews back to Judah, it all became clear. God answered Habakkuk's prayer and he did it effectively. He brought salvation to his people. And by saying he brought salvation to his people, I'm not referring only to the remnant who returned to Jerusalem. Yes, they were delivered from Babylon and they received a sort of salvation when they were able to return home. But God brought salvation to all his people, 
all of his people from every tongue, tribe, and nation by preserving the messianic line. The promise God made in the Garden of Eden is that the seed of the woman will bruise the head of the serpent. Then God revealed as more revelation came forth that the promised Messiah, the messianic seed will pass through the lineage of Abraham and the lineage of Isaac and the lineage of Jacob. And then we read that the scepter will not depart from Judah. So in preserving a faithful remnant from the tribe of Judah, God was preserving the seed of the woman. He was bringing forth the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who will save his people from their sins. Remember the four things that righteous groaning reveals about a person's faith in God? The third one is that God has a plan, a schedule, and a timetable for subduing the wicked. And when we ask the question, how long, we're demonstrating that we do believe that God has appointed a day and hour for, uh, in which he will subdue the wicked. Our challenge, therefore, in our groaning is not so much in believing that God will subdue the wicked, but being patient for God to subdue the wicked. Romans 8 offers a lot of encouragement in this area. And the encouragement comes in a way that um, you may not have expected. Uh, Romans 8.20 tells us how the creation is, has been subjected to futility. Not willingly, not because the creation chose that, but because the Lord subjected the creation to futility. And this is a result of the fall. Uh, Adam's sin not only brought condemnation upon all his posterity, but it also brought a curse upon the entire creation. But Romans 8 verse 20 says something unexpected about the curse that God put on creation. It says that God subjected the creation to futility in hope. In hope. The hope is described in the next verse, which says that the creation itself will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. In other words, the creation knows that redemption is in store for it. Now, I'm not sure that I really understand how creation has this sort of knowledge and consciousness, but the Word of God says it does, so I'm not going to challenge that. God says that the creation knows that a day is coming when it will be delivered from the oppressive curse that is presently afflicting it. And then Romans 8.22 goes on to say that the creation groans today. It's groaning. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. This isn't a matter of speculation that the creation groans. Um, Paul says that we know this to be true. That's how he starts out Romans 8.22. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. All of the creation is groaning under the curse of sin but its groaning is in hope. Uh, It's patiently groaning with the eager expectation that it will be delivered from the curse according to God's divine timetable. And this is where Paul brings the encouragement to you and me in an unexpected way. He writes in verse 23, not only that, referring to creation groaning with expectation and hope, not only that, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, 
Even we groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of the body, for we were saved in this hope. So brothers and sisters, we groan because of sin in the world. We groan because we're consistently exposed to the persistent sins of the impious. And in our groaning, we cry out to God, how long? But we don't groan as those who have been defeated. Like the rest of creation, we groan in hope. We groan while eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. And we already possess the immense blessing of knowing that we have been saved in this hope. That's what Romans 8.23 says, that we have been saved in this very hope of our redemption. Therefore, as this chapter concludes, we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. That is the hope that we have, brothers and sisters, in our groaning. Yes, we groan along with the rest of creation, but we groan with hope because we know, we know for certainty because of the faith that exists within our heart that God will redeem us from our, from our groaning. Amen. And let us pray. This has been a presentation of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. For more resources and information, please stop by our website at visitredeemer.org. All material here within, unless otherwise noted, copyright Redeemer Presbyterian Church, Elk Grove, California. Music furnished by Nathan Clark George, available at nathanclarkgeorge.com.